Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society, and today I'm interviewing Professor William Polk on the... Good day. My name is Charles Coutillo of the Royal Historical Society, and today I'm interviewing Professor William Polk on behalf of New Books Network and History Division. The subject, the subject of our um, conversation will be Professor Polk's, Polk's new book, Crusade and Jihad, The Thousand-Year War Between the Muslim World and the Global North. Professor Polk, uh, you have had a most extraordinary career, and I thought before we just got into the book, you could perhaps relate to the audience a bit about your career and indeed discuss some of the individuals who you discuss in the book who you met in person. All right, sure. Well, I grew up uh, partly on a ranch in Texas, and when I was a very young boy, I was a cowboy. So I started out, uh, uh, among other things, riding the fences on my father's ranch. And one of the things I think led me toward the uh, writing of this book was that uh, I knew so little about any of the people who lived around us or who had lived around us uh, before I was born. Just 50 or so years before I was born, the area that I was riding and the fences that my father and his father had built on this land, of course, didn't exist. Uh, The area was uh, the preserve of the Comanche Indian people. And uh, as a boy, all I really knew about the the Indians were that we regarded them as terrible terrorists, and we were protected by the Texas Rangers and the, uh, the Seventh Cavalry. Uh, otherwise, uh, they would have scalped us and would have horribly mistreated us. We knew almost nothing about their culture, or indeed, we didn't even know their proper name. And none of the people I knew around me did either. And, of course, the same is also really true of the Afro-American community. They were just people who, as a boy I thought were there, they were uh, not part of uh, the community of which I was a part. And uh, they were just a, a sort of alien presence uh, that somehow loomed over uh, my part of the society. And as I grew a bit older, I went through a period of military training, and then I began to travel around the world. And a very odd thing happened to me during that early period. Uh, Everywhere I went, people welcomed me in to their houses, their villages, their tribes. They fed me and took care of me and and, uh, sped me on my way. Uh, It never occurred to me that uh, this was a dangerous situation or that I might be ill-treated. And certainly everywhere I was treated with warmth and friendship and openness that uh, uh, was quite astonishing. 
as I grew older and began to study more, uh, I realized uh, this is, of course, uh, after World War II, that uh, uh, many of the people in the world had begun to change their feelings strongly about America and Americans. And as I began to be able to read their language or languages and uh, to talk to more and more people, I realized that it was much about what we were doing in the world and what was happening around me that I simply knew nothing about. So I uh, delved as deeply as I possibly could into particularly Arabic and Turkish uh, and began to study and teach uh, the cultures and habits and fears and hopes of peoples all over Africa and Asia in several American universities. Then I went into the government during the Kennedy administration and at the request of the president was put in charge of planning American policy for much of Africa and uh, Western and Central and South Asia. And during the course of that time, I had the marvelous experience of traveling a great deal, meeting a lot of people, talking to virtually all the major leaders and the um, uh, and their opponents in many cases uh, all over that vast area. It really was sort of like going back to school all over again. It was a marvelous experience. I learned a great deal from it. And I resigned uh, not quite a year after President Kennedy's death. During that period, I had also uh, played a rather significant role in the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, was one of the three members of the organization that was called the Crisis Management Committee. So when I left the government, uh, I uh, went to become professor of history at the University of Chicago. And during that time, I wrote a number of books and lots and lots of articles. And uh, then in 1967, I set up and became the director and later president of the Adlai Stevenson Institute of International Affairs. Uh, then uh, a few years later, eight years later, in fact, I resigned and, and uh, uh, settled down to do most of the writing I've done ever since. But I've had the opportunity um, to meet and talk with uh, virtually a, an astonishing array of the people who thought and worried about the position of American world affairs. And this book really is a kind of culmination of some 70 years uh, of uh, research, thinking, writing, talking, um, and visiting people all over this vast area. So it's a sort of distillation, in effect, of my life, as well as my uh, reaction to and learning from the various people I've dealt with. So that in a capsule is pretty much the background of the book and where I've come from. Now, um, uh, what would you say is your primary thesis or idea of uh, your book? The primary notion is that we, uh, or the, the motivation, if you will, is that we know so little about most of the people who we're dealing with in the world. We have enormous power, but we have also enormous ignorance. The number of Americans who can find other countries on a map is astonishingly low. 
even the people who are many of the people who we've appointed as ambassadors to represent the United States show absolutely appalling ignorance about the world we live in. And my thesis, I suppose, is that if we want to have peace, and if we even want to have a modest amount of security, we've got to know more about what the other people we have to live with want and what they're doing and how we can get along with them. If we don't have that, we don't have, it seems to me, much of a chance of having the security and peace that we all want. That That's the motivation behind the book. In your introduction, you highlight the importance of the Arabic language in relating your story. Can you perhaps expand on that a little bit? Well, yes. Uh, Arabic is um, um, one of the world's major languages. It, along with English and Russian and Chinese, is spoken by a large part of the world population. And Arabic encapsulates the culture of the Muslim world. Even those people who speak other languages as their preferred or home language uh, learn Arabic because the principal religious document, the Quran, is written in Arabic. And uh, most of the uh, elevated or uh, sophisticated studies of uh, not only religion, but religion as politics and as culture uh, is encapsulated in Arabic. Uh, Arabic, Turkish, and Persian are the, the major languages that are used over this vast area where something like one out of every six people in the world uh, is a member of that community. So it's uh, the the ability to listen to what other people are saying, to read what they're writing, uh, is absolutely critical in an attempt to understand what the world that we have to live in uh, is made up of. And if we don't begin to have that, then it's really an astonishing weakness on our side. Think how, how odd it would seem to you or to me uh, to have somebody come to the United States uh, to write about our politics and our history and our people's attitudes and so forth, who was illiterate in English, who was unable to communicate with anybody in our language. Uh, we would think that's really uh, absolutely absurd. But until roughly uh, the 1960s, uh, we relied on, uh, in quotes, experts who were simply illiterate in the languages and, and the background of the people who we were trying to deal with or trying to understand. Yes, although I suppose if one wanted to be contrary, one can point out that, say, someone like, um, I don't think you've met them, they were a little bit before your time, but you've probably heard of them, like Gertrude Bell or Sir Arnold Wilson, who were thoroughly um, familiar with the culture and background and uh, the language of the peoples of Mesopotamia and uh, further afield in the near Middle East, but that didn't necessarily make their policies vis-a-vis the local people any more enlightened? Well, there were a few, but uh, uh, you're quite right, Gertrude Bell and a handful of others, but uh, most of them, in fact, really knew uh, just the superficial aspects of the language they were dealing with. They couldn't read, most of them couldn't read the language. They could, uh, quite a few of them spoke what also most called Kitchen Arabic. And 
concerned with trying to understand what the people they were dealing with wanted or thought about or how they were formed, but they were concerned with how they could be controlled by the imperial powers. Gertrude Bell, for example, who you mentioned, uh, was the uh, senior local expert on Iraq during the great uh, uh, time of rebellion uh, against the British. And uh, her interest in, in, in Iraq was, of course, how to help the British control the country. Yeah, so in essence, uh, her interest um, was not that of the, uh, the lo- local people's primary interest, but of her own government's. But that's, that's in perhaps the nature of things. But getting back to your introduction of the book, can you highlight um, I'm sorry, could you actually explain a uh, little bit, because you go into it, the dynamism or the impetus, if you like, of uh, the military expansionism of Islam from the death of Muhammad to, say, the latter part of the 7th century? Yes, uh, it, the, what happened... Uh was quite an extraordinary thing, and it is not only in that period of history, but also during the Mongol invasions and the Turkish invasions later uh, in Central Asia. Uh, tribal people uh, tend to split up among themselves, so they balance one tribal group against another, and uh, the net result is uh, very little outside pressure. What happened in Islam? was that um, Muhammad managed to convince a number of the, um, the the tribal leaders with whom he dealt and the city and town leaders who he uh, enrolled in his activities that they should join together in what became a kind of super tribe, the tribe of Islam. And uh, he outlawed internal fighting, uh, not always successfully, but he... Uh, but with some reasonable success, so that all the energies that had been devoted against one another within the society of Arabia were suddenly turned outward. And that was a time in which um, the peoples of Europe and and, uh, North Africa uh, were themselves divided into various groups. And the Persian Empire, the Iranian Empire, was itself in a period of turmoil, if not chaos, so that the sudden explosion of military uh, uh, force, which had previously been uh, divided and neutralized internally, uh, erupted against uh, uh, this sequence of people. And so Islam, or, or the, the originally the Muslims and then followed later by the Berbers and the Turks, and uh, other people who, who converted to Islam, uh, as I say, exploded against uh, the Iranian Empire, uh, the Byzantine Empire, and on into parts of Europe. Uh, it was a period of great conquests, but much of it, uh, it was not so much a military conquest as such, because of almost everywhere local peoples joined with the, uh, the, the Muslims for various reasons. For example, in Spain, it was to a large extent the Jewish community, which had been persecuted under the Vandal uh, regime, 
uh, that welcomed uh, the Berber invasion of uh, Spain and converted much of Spain into an Islamic state or an Islamic caliphate as it became. That happened also in Iran. Uh, there was um, uh, a large part of the Iranian population which was essentially politically neutral uh, or had been as much exploited by their own governments as, as they later would be exploited by uh, the, uh, the incoming Arabs. So uh, everywhere uh, that's a similar uh, set of opportunities arose. And even before the invasions per se, and of course always after it, uh, various peoples uh, gained a great deal from uh, trade, uh, from the unification of areas, the opening of new lines of communication, so that uh, uh, even with the disruption of things like the Crusades, uh, the whole of the Mediterranean world became virtually a free trade area. And um, there was an effusion of culture uh, in the aftermath of this period of invasion uh, that was astonishing to the Europeans. Europe was at that time in, in the depths of the Dark Ages after the collapse of the Roman Empire and the invasion of the Mongol, of the uh, Vandals and of the, the, the uh, various other uh, tribal groups uh, who overthrew the Roman Empire. Uh, the, what occurred in the Muslim areas was the light that shone in that dark period. Yes. Um, I take it then you would not agree with um, people like uh, Dario Fernandez Morena in his book, The Myth of the Andalusian Paradise, that in fact the uh, amalgamation of the three uh, groups of uh, people, Christian, Jewish, and Muslims, in uh, Spain was uh, more of a myth than a reality, that there was more of a case of uh, Muslim heavy predominance? Uh, I, I don't want to get into an argument on somebody else's interpretation of these things, but I think uh, if you look at the production of, um, of literary texts, the research in medicine and uh, astronomy, uh, the, the cultural effusion and literature and so forth, uh, this Spain became uh, a, a sort of ecumenical society. Uh, much of it was done by uh, Arabs, uh, a lot of it by Berbers, some of it by the resident Jewish community, uh, a lot of it by uh, uh, various uh, immigrants from other areas. But uh, given the context that we're dealing with at the time uh, of the Dark Ages in Europe, it was an astonishing cultural achievement. Uh, whether one group played a larger role than another is, of course, open always to uh, revision and doubt and so forth. But on, on balance, it was, a, uh, a, it was something that absolutely mesmerized the contemporary society. Uh, would you agree with those historians who uh, 
posit that Muslim civilization was fundamentally changed by the Mongol invasions and their aftermath in the 13th and 14th centuries? Oh, enormously so, yes. Uh, what happened uh, is, is, I think, uh, not so well known as it should be. The, the Mongol invasion uh, went over quite a long period of time and stretched over an enormous uh, extent of the world's territory. So that, of course, it changed uh, from time to time, and the impact that it had on different peoples changed. But, uh, for example, take one little area, the Kashmir. The Mongol invasion virtually wiped out the previous largely Hindu uh, culture of Kashmir. And uh, what happened was that the Kashmiris uh, went in effect, aside from their own inherited background and began to uh, try to find something new and different uh, to protect their lives and to give them some hope in the future. The same thing happened over much of Central Asia and ultimately uh, throughout practically the entire uh, band that stretches around the, uh, the earth from east to west. Uh, that factor was the rise of uh, mysticism or Sufism. What happened very simply was that people over a period of almost a century uh, found that their lives had disintegrated into a, a virtual collapse. Uh, it was what I would imagine might happen in the world if we had a nuclear war. Uh, people were killed in the millions. Uh, people who survived uh, were barely hanging on to the threads of their previous life. And the uh, attraction of mysticism was that all that really didn't matter. That if you deeply believed and you did certain things to enhance your sensitivity to uh, uh, your inner self, you could survive. And that movement, which came to be called Sufism, spread everywhere. Uh, and so we find uh, uh, groups of Sufis forming brotherhoods in the Sudan, in Morocco, in uh, Arabia, in uh, uh, Chinese Turkestan, in uh, uh, everywhere that one can, can touch all through that huge expanse of territory across the world. In the book, you state that in between the 16th and the 18th centuries, uh, what you characterize as, quote, the global north, unquote, uh, became more advanced and more expansionist than the global south, as you also term it, or aka in the context of this book, uh, Arabic Muslim civilizations. Why was that? Well, I think there were multiple reasons. Um, one reason was that um, uh, for all the bad things that the uh, the, the uh, Mongol invasion did, it opened up the world in uh, surprising ways. We see, for example, that uh, people like Marco Polo were able for the first, not the only time, but for virtually the first time, to travel the world fairly easily. Uh, the Polo brothers uh, uh, the Polo and, and Marco went to China, and they brought back uh, various things that they had learned there. The Chinese civilization 
had boomed in the meantime, even under Mongol rule. And uh, so all of a sudden, Europeans uh, began to take tentative small steps toward uh, what we saw happening uh, in the Industrial Revolution and later. For example, um, the the first coins were minted um, in the 13th century. Uh, and so for the first time, commerce became much more easy than it had been for five or six hundred years in Europe. Um, the first gold uh, coin, in fact, was minted in Florence, uh, and it was uh, patterned on uh, a Chinese uh, uh, use of currency. Uh, then later, the... Uh, um, uh, one by one, various small steps began to be taken. One that's fascinating to me is that the uh, uh, eyeglasses were invented. And what that did was to enable a craftsman who had spent his whole life learning how to do some piece of work uh, was apt to be at the age of 40 or 45 or 50 uh, no longer capable of doing his job. But the invention of eyeglasses gave him another period of five or 10 or 20 years to do more work. So that a, if you think of it in, in statistical economic terms, labor force, uh, the skilled labor force of Europe, suddenly, or not suddenly, but over a period of nearly a century, uh, was given something like a 25% boost in productivity. Uh, as paper became available and as printing presses began to be set up, uh, originally most of them in Europe as well as in uh, the Muslim world were devoted to religious uh, topics. But little by little, they began to change and to uh, talk about how you could, for example, build a windmill. And as they learned how to Im- Im- embed in a book an illustration, uh, the uh, a picture or a drawing of a windmill could be inserted to show how you built it. So a little by step by step, various things happened that enabled the Europeans to move ahead. And uh, in in the case of uh, trade, uh, the opening of the Mediterranean uh, to uh, international trade was a, another major factor. There was much more movement back and forth along the Mediterranean coasts than most of us even knew about uh, 50 years ago. Uh, so that there was a great deal of, of intercultural activity that also stimulated Europe. Then finally, as the Europeans uh, developed more military technology and more capacity to operate, uh, they struck out uh, across the Mediterranean into Africa particularly. The Europeans at that time also developed a taste for sugar. And sugar uh, spread, or the growth of sugar spread slowly from the eastern Mediterranean uh, to the Atlantic. And sugar plantations required an enormous amount of labor. And that's what caused the Europeans to begin the process of colonization of Africa, particularly the the, uh, rise of the slave trade. 
uh, it was interesting that it was uh, uh, Columbus's uh, stepfather who ran one of the sugar plantations in the Azores, which was his stopping off place on the way to the New World. And uh, there was much interest in, in massive crop development of that period. That led on uh, to the later policies of European powers as they became more and more adept at handling the, the Asians uh, to, uh, to, to build the capacity to run Asian countries. Uh, and as they did, that got them little by little into the, what we call the Industrial Revolution. And a major factor of the Industrial Revolution that is very rarely mentioned is that much of the financing for it actually came from Africa and Asia. And uh, while the beneficiaries were uh, primarily the English and to some extent the French, uh, much of the money that uh, enabled the Industrial Revolution to get underway was produced in India. And the, as the Europeans developed their capacity in finance and trade, they bought, for example, the uh, trade as uh, trade and industrial development of Egypt uh, in order to open it up to European uh, goods. So uh, the whole series of little steps, one after another, culminated in the uh, enormous growth of power of uh, what I call the North. Uh, in the South, those things didn't happen in the same way. Uh, when you had almost uh, unlimited manpower, as say the uh, uh, the Indian government uh, in the Mughal Empire had, you didn't really need to do things that saved uh, labor. So people did not engage in building uh, equipment that was a labor-saving device. Uh, if you had an elephant to ride, you didn't need to have a carriage. And if you didn't have a carriage, you didn't need to build a road. And so step piece by piece, these things all impacted on one another to the advantage of Europe and the disadvantage of the, uh, the South countries. In the book, you appear to shortchange uh, a bit uh, the Arabic or um, Near Eastern, if you like, involvement in the slave trade, uh, which was quite long-standing, both the slave trade from um, uh, the Caucasus as well as uh, what is today uh, Crimea, southern Ukraine, as well as, of course, the slave trade from sub-Saharan Africa. Why is that? I don't mean to shortchange that in any sense at all. It was, uh, uh, a, a, it was a multinational activity in which everybody was involved and uh, everybody enjoyed the slavery for a long period of time. Uh, the uh, uh, original uh, slaving expeditions in uh, starting in Africa uh, relied heavily on local uh, African chiefs uh, having a war with their neighbors and enslaving the people and selling them to the Europeans who, who bought, who bought them. Uh, slavers operated in uh, East Africa in the same way, uh, in, enslaving uh, their enemies in uh, military and defeated uh, societies and selling them to uh, 
uh, Arab and other slave traders. Arab slave traders were quite predominant uh, in the Caucasus and in Russia. Uh, a large part of the slave trade was in the hands of Jewish merchants, um, so that you had Christian, Jewish, uh, Muslim uh, involvement in the trade, along with the uh, active involvement of local uh, peoples who were neither one of those three religions. And is it also the case that until the late 50s, early 1960s, there was still some type of um, uh, slavery enforced in uh, Arabia, in the Gulf states? Yes, uh, there's no question that there, I think the UN statistics indicate uh, an almost unbelievable number of millions of people today who we would classify as slaves. Uh, all over, uh, not only in, the, in, in Arabia, but uh, in a very wide uh, sweep of the world. And of course, uh, even after slavery was legally abolished in uh, other countries, uh, say India, for example, uh, a sort of subterfuge was created, which was virtual slavery, in which uh, so-called indentured laborers were uh, recruited because they were starving to death and shipped abroad to work in rubber plantations and tin mines and and uh, uh, various other groups that ended up in the Caribbean and all over much of the, uh, the Western world. Uh, slavery is a horrible thing, uh, but it's something that all of us have uh, rather dirty hands in, in dealing with. Uh, could you explain to the audience the historical importance for the region of Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798? Uh, to understand why Napoleon invaded? No, 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 the historical importance in terms of the reaction, oh, local uh, reaction to his invasion and occupation of Egypt. I think the local reaction was really probably much exaggerated. Um, we know that the Egyptians disliked uh, the French as foreigners, and the French committed a lot of, as armies almost always do, of atrocities, so that there was a reaction against them. But not, I think, uh, in the sense that is uh, uh, so often been written, particularly by French writers, that uh, Napoleon uh, cast suddenly light into darkest Africa, and the, the Africans went ahead to produce uh, their reaction to the modern world uh, in the light of what he had uh, done. Uh, the period after uh, Napoleon uh, was a period in which the Ottoman Empire, or its, uh, its minions, uh, returned and resuscitated uh, their control over Egypt. They got rid of the uh, traditional slave uh, rulers, the, the Mamluks, and uh, began to create what they thought was a modern European uh, army, particularly the Ottoman Empire was doing the same thing at the same time. Uh, it was a long time before uh, very much of what we think of as Egypt was really influenced deeply by uh, anything that resembled uh, European culture. There were un Fascinating exceptions, of course, to that. There were intellectual Egyptians, such as the writer uh, 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 who we read most about, uh, uh, 
who had visited uh, Europe and wrote a book on France. Uh, 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 and but the, the the number of people who were involved in that kind of transformation were always relative to Egyptian society, very small, for at least another generation. Can you relate to the audience the origins of Arab nationalism in the late 19th century and why in the 20th century it in essence failed as a political project? Uh, nationalism. Is that, yeah, is that, uh, specifically Arab nationalism. Uh, well, nationalism uh, spread in, in Europe uh, of course, much earlier than in uh, uh, in the southern part of the world, uh, it began um, to be thought of, uh, I suppose, most generally uh, as an aftermath of the French Revolution, and uh, it uh, uh, captured the imagination of the German little German principalities, <coughs> the little Italian principalities. <laughs> and uh, uh, captured, uh, had already captured the imagination of the French. <clears throat> so uh, other people began to discover it during the 19th century. Uh, for the first time, I think it's fair to say the Jewish community discovered nationalism in the middle of the 19th century. And the Arabs uh, were much slower. They picked, didn't really pick up the notion of nationalism until the 20th century. And then it was a way to get over the issue of, uh, of religion. Christians uh, could not join easily with Muslims in a political movement. But if the movement were rechristened as, uh, as nationalism, it was possible for both Muslims uh, and Jews uh, and Arabs to join together, which uh, increasing numbers of them did, particularly in Lebanon, Jerusalem some extent in Egypt, and uh, then uh, little by little in various other countries. But uh, it was a movement that uh, um, was has to be thought of, I think, both in terms of its positive aspects, that it got people together, and its negative aspects in that it overwhelmed the, uh, the, the forces of vision between them. You describe the writer who subsequently called himself al-Afghani uh, as the political missionary of 19th century of the political missionary of the 19th century Muslim world. Can you tell the audience a little bit about him and why he's an important figure in your story? Yes, he's an absolutely fascinating figure. Uh, we all love to think of history in terms of personalities, of course. And it, it makes it much more interesting and much more humane and human to us. And he was an extraordinary man and under any uh, definition. He probably was born in Iran. Uh, and the importance of that was that he probably was originally, uh, if not overtly, uh, or if not covertly, always a Shia Muslim rather than a Sunni Muslim. And he, his adoption of the name Al-Afghani was probably a way of disguising uh, the fact that he, he did have this uh, uh, Shia uh, background. Uh, he started out um, in 
really the first time that we know much of anything about him in Afghanistan. Uh, he was a wandering uh, scholar. Uh, he was, uh, I don't know how one can say whether how deeply religious person that he was, but he was certainly very learned in the field of Islam and Islamic uh, subjects. And he um, actually acted as an advisor uh, on political matters to the uh, then rulers of Afghanistan. They fell out under terms we don't know very much about, and he ended up traveling to India, where he lived apparently very quietly for a period of time. Um, what he did, nobody knows. Uh, he then uh, made his way across to Arabia uh, in the guise of performing the pilgrimage, which he may have been totally uh, in favor of doing, or, or even emotionally in favor of doing. But he then uh, traveled on to Egypt, and where he fell into a, a small group of, uh, of young Egyptians who were desperately trying to figure out what had gone wrong in their lives, what they needed to do to reclaim what they thought of as the vigor and importance of their way of life of, of, as they cast it in terms of religion. And uh, he particularly was very close to a man by the name of Muhammad Abdu, who, uh, uh, who became his right-hand man, his secretary and helper and so forth, and with whom he later founded a journal it was read all over uh, Asia and Africa, uh, uh, espousing the cause of modernizing Islam. Uh, he then decided that the way to reform this, uh, that part of the world uh, was not so much in, in intellectual terms, but in going to the leaders of the world, of the Muslim world. So he tried to convert his way of thinking, uh, both the Shah of Iran uh, and the leader of the Ottoman Empire, neither one of which was successful. They both regarded him as a subversive character and wanted to get rid of him. Uh, he probably was involved in in uh, a, an act of political uh, terrorism and assassination, uh, and he led a, if you will, a frustrating uh, course of his his career from one seeming opportunity to another. But what he finally left behind him was a residue of thinking about the possibility of, <clears throat> of a reform of Islam uh, that motivated a whole generation of thinkers, not only in Egypt and the, the Middle East, but also in the Caucasus. Uh, in uh, the southern uh, uh, Russia and uh, in, in the Crimea and uh, all throughout Central Asia. One of the figures that you meet in the book um, uh, personally uh, is uh, the late President Nasser of Egypt. Can you tell us a little bit about the context of your meeting and why ultimately his political project of, or his particular type of Arab nationalism failed as a political project? Uh, Nasser was an extraordinary figure, uh, very, very different, of course, from the man we've just been talking about, Jamal al-Din. Uh, Nasser was a young officer in the Egyptian army who had seen uh, 
the corruption of the Egyptian government up close. As a military uh, officer, he fought in the campaign in Palestine, and he came back, uh, I wouldn't say embittered, but determined that something had to change if the if dignity, which was a major force all through his life, uh, was to be uh, obtained. And uh, I think he went into politics without any very strong uh, preconceived ideas. He was always questing for ideas, and everyone he talked to, he, he queried about what their opinions were. I had a number of talks with him in which he uh, uh, was ex extraordinarily frank and straightforward about what he was trying to do. What he was trying to do, basically, was to upgrade uh, the population of his country of Egypt. That was his first objective. And the way to do that, he thought, was through education. But he realized that he couldn't do very much with education as it then existed in Egypt, because that was all through, uh, in the first place, through the humanities. And he wanted things that were, in his terms, practical. He wanted technology in science. And also because the educational system of Egypt uh, fell into two parts. One was religious, which didn't seem to him to contribute anything to the goals that he'd set. And the other was that it was restricted essentially to the privileged class. The people who went, for example, to the University of Cairo were almost all from um, the, the privileged urban group, not from the people who lived in the villages where most Egyptians lived. So what he hit on was the idea, first of all, of inducting into the army uh, a large part of the Egyptian population. And during their period in the army, giving them a modicum of technological capacity. The first thing, for example, was uh, a large number of young men learned how to drive a car or learned how to drive a truck or a tank or an armored car. Uh, they had never had any kind of experience of that kind before. They had to have people who knew how to repair those things. Uh, they, little by little, uh, were transformed by the knowledge of what life in the villages had done to them. There's one of the terrible facts of life in most of Africa and a large part of Asia uh, was that there is, in the waterways of the Nile and the, the various other rivers, a worm disease that's carried by snails called bilharziasis. And if you wade in the water, which you have to do to engage in agriculture, uh, you become infected with bilharziasis almost definitely, almost assuredly. And if that happens, you are killed. It's not a mass murderer like uh, malaria, for example, but it uh, does uh, result in uh, a loss of vigor and, uh, and capacity. Uh, people who have bilharziasis are tired all the time. Uh, their, their, their energies are sapped. Their uh, motivation is, is uh, undermined. And he recognized that uh, these people had to be, as it were, yanked out of the river valleys and brought into the cities. And so the army was his school. And he created what I have called in another context, new man. 
They were people who learned how to use mechanical tools. They learned how to do various things. For example, a man who uh, learned how to use an electric saw was suddenly uh, a Western-style carpenter and very different from the traditional uh, carpenter that, that existed in the, in the society. And those people came to play a major role in what he was trying to do by industrializing the country. He then, ironically and curiously, tried to adapt uh, the Israeli system of the kibbutz uh, to Egyptian society, creating a province of Egypt in which uh, all the members were vetted uh, psychologically before being allowed in. Uh, their dress was changed. Their children were put in special schools. They were had their standard of living uh, artificially upgraded. And they were to be the new Egyptians. Uh, the program did not work very well. He had no major capacity to undertake it. Egypt was a poor country, and even the resources that he had commanded were relatively small. Uh, if it had been uh, otherwise, if he'd had the, the money, the people, and so forth to do it, you might have seen today a very different Egypt. But the old Egypt. Uh, continued and overwhelmed, in effect, the new Egypt that he was trying to create. He was driven, uh, as a consequence of his ideas, into uh, activities abroad. Uh, we often, uh, we in the American government often tried to get him to stop diddling with other countries, stop engaging in trying to, to force their governments into his way of thinking. Uh, and Yemen was his Vietnam. He, it really destroyed what he was trying to do. Uh, and toward the end of his life, of course, the whole system virtually collapsed. And he died in 1970. Uh, one of the last things he did was to agree with the cease, for a ceasefire on the Suez Canal with, uh, with Israel. And he had already indicated before that time his willingness to stop the Arab-Israeli, or stop at least the Egyptian-Israeli war uh, by agreeing to some of the things that we were trying to push him to do, demilitarizing Suez, allowing ships free passage in the Enterprise Canal or channel uh, to uh, uh, the south of um, uh, Israel, and to uh, uh, work toward uh, a recognition of Israel. So. Uh, at the end of his life, I think it's fair to say that his his notion of Arab unity and Arab nationalism had collapsed. Where, where would you fit um, in your story? Where do you fit, I should say, in your story of uh, Osama bin Laden? Uh, say that again. Where do you fit in your story Osama bin Laden? Um, Osama bin Laden, I take as the... Uh, in effect, the, the next generation. What happened um, as the collapse of nationalism uh, under at the end of Nasser's life was that everyone who had thought that there was something in nationalism that would give them the sense of meaning, protection, uh, dignity, and so forth that they were seeking it didn't work. The only thing they really had left was religion. And Osama bin Laden, uh, for anything that one thinks about him, was a deeply religious man. And he 
uh, picked up the ideas of the Egyptian uh, uh, leader uh, of the Islamic movement uh, uh, under the uh, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and uh, carried it uh, into militancy. Uh, that was, uh, it seems to me, an almost inevitable move. Uh, he was, um, I never met him, uh, but he was a man who uh, uh, was curiously uh, uh, adept at uh, transforming his, his activities to fit his ideology. For example, one of the things that uh, was quite astonishing about him was that when uh, Saddam Hussein uh, invaded Kuwait, Osama bin Laden offered to raise a military force to help drive him out. Uh, and uh, he despised Saddam Hussein because he was not because he was a tyrant, but because he was a secularist. And uh, the mood, the mood that uh, that we associate with Osama bin Laden was uh, a move back toward the only thing that the people who were fighting against uh, the residues of colonialism and imperialism, what I call the, the post-colonial malaise, uh, had left was religion. And he was the, the personification of that movement. Professor Pope, if uh, you wanted a reader to take away one thing from your book, what would it be? Uh I think what I would like to have him do is read the final section, which has uh, three parts. The first part is what we did to that part of the world and what that part of the world did to themselves. Uh, and finally, then, what I think we could begin to do to create the sense of security and peace and well-being that we all hope for. Uh, the, the message of the book is uh, what has happened in the past was terrible. We've got to find a way to get over it, to move toward the future. And uh, the only way that we can start that process is by a full understanding of what really did happen in the past and to what extent we were responsible for it. If we can face up to that, then I think we can put together the elements that will enable us to move toward the the, the freedom, the security, the decency, uh, the well-being that all of us look for. Professor Polk, I would like to thank you very much for speaking uh, to us today. Um, it's been a pleasure as well as an enlightening experience. Thank you so much indeed. It's been a delight talking to you. Thank you. This is Charles Cotillo, New Books Network. We've been speaking to Professor William Polk on his new book, Crusade and Jihad, Yale University Press. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, sir.